Hello and welcome to Filmwalk. This is Glenn. I'm here with Daniel. Hello. And tonight we're going to be reviewing the new erotic thriller drama from director Adrian Lin, and that film is Deep Water, which is new on Hulu as of a couple weeks ago. But first, we will be checking out the brand new film from the directors collectively known as The Daniels, and that film is called Everything Everywhere All at Once. Mrs. Wang, are you with us? I am paying attention. Now you may only see a pile of receipts, but I see a story. I can see where this story is going. It does not look good. What's happening? I'm not your husband. I'm another version of one from another universe. I'm here because we need your help. Very busy today. Uh, no time to help you. Across the multiverse, I've seen thousands of Evelyns. You can access all of their memories, their emotions, even their skills. There's a great evil spreading throughout the many verses. And you may be your only chance of stopping it. Don't make me fight you. I am really good. I don't believe you. That was from the trailer of Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, a new film from directors Daniel Shannard and Dan Kwan, known collectively as the Daniels. They are the directors of the film Swiss Army Man, which I saw and absolutely adored back in 2016. They also made a film called The Death of Dick Long, which is not a film that I've seen, uh, but I'm kind of eager to now. Uh, this film stars Michelle Yeoh, Ki Hui Kwan, and Stephanie Su as members of a family, the Wangs, which uh, they are Evelyn, Waymond, and, jo- and Joy Wang. And they are uh, they are a Chinese uh, and Chinese-American family. Uh, Michelle Yeoh is clearly a first-generation immigrant, um, Is still uh, it has been living in the country long enough that she is uh, very well-versed in English, but still occasionally has trouble with it. Uh, her daughter is clearly an uh, an an American who was born here. Um, this film is very much uh, about the experience of an immigrant family, specifically an, uh, a Chinese-American immigrant family. They live in an apartment above the laundromat that they own collectively, and uh, they are uh, in the process of being audited by the IRS uh, amid other family crises happening, when all of a sudden, uh, Evelyn gets visited by a version of her husband from another universe. And it kind of just goes from there. So, there is a pan-dimensional war going on in this film, and uh, the precise nature of that war is uh, is probably the subject of many spoilers, but it's fair to say this is a film in which almost anything can and does happen, and yet almost the entire movie takes place in a single location, an IRS building, where they're being audited by a character who, no joke, is named Deirdre Bobirdra, played by Jamie Lee Curtis. So, Daniel, how much did you know about this film going in? <laughs> Well, as I often tell you, I go into these things very cold. Uh, I don't read what the title of the movie is. I don't look at trailers. I just know where to go. Fair. The film was uh, called Everything Everywhere All at Once, and it uh, it's one of those long and unwieldy titles that kind of runs together with the book of tiny perfect things and extremely loud and incredibly close and just 
sort of a mildly cutesy twee sort of title, but there is nothing cutesy or twee about what is going on in this film. It's about the overwhelming power of the multiverse in the same way as the Jet Li film, The One uh, from, from the year 2000. It's about people trying to take power from one universe and manifest it in another to call upon versions of themselves that exist in other universes that were the product of different choices that they could have made in their own lives, which would have resulted in a completely different version of themselves. Sometimes a version of themselves that can do amazing things. Sometimes a version of themselves that is, that is outright absurd. Um, there is a great deal of of absurdity going on in this film, and yet there is also a an intense family drama going on with the daughter Joy, who is uh, who is gay and has a girlfriend, and her uh, her parents accept this about her somewhat, uh, but they want her to keep. Uh, they want her to keep the nature of her relationship with her girlfriend to herself uh, in front of their grandfather. And this is the subject of much strife within their family. And also what we learn at the very beginning of the film is that Wayman Wang, uh, played by Ki Hui Kwan, is, uh, is preparing to file for divorce from his wife, Evelyn. He attempts to serve her with papers at the beginning of the film, but fails to do so. So for the rest of the movie... This is a secret that is hanging over them, and it is a brilliantly established piece of tension that is going out at the beginning of this film and just kind of hangs over every action after that. So I'm going to have to get into spoilers here before I can talk about exactly what my favorite things about this movie were. But Daniel, you'll recall when I walked out of this film, I told the studio rep, and then I told you that this was one of the best movies I've ever seen. And do you recall your your withering rejoinder to that? Uh, I believe I said much like Hugo was. Yeah, Hugo is not a movie that I think about all that much, and sometimes these life-changing movies come along and I keep thinking about them, and sometimes I don't, and it's fair to say that could be happening again this time, but uh, suffice to say, this movie is very much aware of its influences, it definitely owes a great deal to the, to the Matrix films, it owes a little bit to the likes of Free Guy and Ready Player One, and uh, other sort of let's-be-a-video-game-character-IRL kind of characters, but it is also so thoroughly its own thing. The interplay between the universal and the specific that is that is here in this film, it is not only a film with so much to identify with as a parent, as a son, but also uh, so much that is specific to the experience of this Asian American family. And we had the uh, we had the opportunity to watch this film with a cohort of, I believe it was a group called Asians at Amazon. So it was a bunch of Amazon.com workers who were mostly Asian and, and their guests that they had brought. So there were moments in the film where I was laughing along with them. At the, this film is also a raucous comedy, uh, as well as a uh, serious sci-fi action film with some intense fight choreography at times. There were moments where I was laughing along with the rest of the audience, and there were moments where the rest of the audience laughed without me, and I just thought to myself, oh, that must be something relatable in a way that I can't directly relate to. So as I'm watching this film and laughing probably 80% of the time along with the rest of the audience, it, it definitely hit me the extent to which this film both is and is not for an audience of me. So that said, I had an absolute blast with this movie. So Daniel, what you think i'm so glad you had a great time with the film that's two in a row man you you were middling on cyrano as well and that was another one i quite liked so what'd you think you know here's the thing i enjoyed the costumes i enjoyed the creativity i enjoyed how they were able to bookend all the little bits that they introduced throughout the film like uh, they all had beginning middle and end to each bit so that was good there was almost a Phil Lord and Chris Miller vibe to the comedy in this film where they would introduce little bits and they would all pay off later in the film. I very much appreciated that. I can tell you, though, as someone who uh, I guess it's my gimmick on the podcast now that I count my laughs. Uh, I laughed zero times during the film. I chuckled once and in the very beginning before I realized what the movie was actually going to be. Right. Um, 
I feel like a movie that's everything all the time, all along somewhere, whatever the title was, accomplishes very little because we don't explore anything in any great depth. I felt like the choreography with the fight scenes was not that interesting. I felt like there really weren't any stakes because whenever you're doing multiverse stuff, like does anything really matter? Like does any individual deaths matter? Does any actions really matter when there's billions of versions of you in just different costumes? So you, you went into full Rick and Morty checked out mode for this. Yeah, I did. And I feel bad because I, I can, I've read some reviews of people who were really like affected by the film, like positively. And I just did not share that. I, I was bored. Uh, I believe when they, uh, because the movie's in three parts, yeah, everything, everywhere, and all at once. When we reached the end of everywhere, or everything, uh, I was like, oh my god, this movie's not over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had a moment of panic of, I'm only one third of the way through this thing. Like, it feels like an eternity that I've been watching it. I felt like a lot of the humor was sophomoric for me, and that's just, I, I have a very specific type of humor that I enjoy. I don't enjoy... Uh, I guess, like, butt gags. Like, it's just not my thing. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and tell you, Daniel, you should not watch Swiss Army Man if you don't enjoy butt gags. Yeah, you know, There's I'm a sorry. a whole lot of farting in that movie. I was 14 once, and that was great, but I'm not 14 anymore, so it just doesn't amuse me. I'm glad everyone in the theater was having a good time. I wasn't, but that doesn't mean that I think the film was bad. I just think the film was just really not for me, and that's okay. Now, what did you think of the performances here? We have sort of a, 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 tr a tr central trio of this family. And I think it's fair to say I expected Michelle Yeoh to be the main character of the film. And I was kind of a little bit with you at the beginning that as soon as she started uh, sort of jumping jumping around between different versions of herself, um, I kind of expected the the stakes of the movie to evaporate for me. But it didn't happen for me in the same way that it did for you. I, I respect that that's the reaction you had and that you suddenly stopped caring about what was going on there. But I was wrapped up in it because we didn't just get the same version of Michelle Yeoh from beginning to end of the film, but we got, let's just say, a common version of her husband and, and, uh, and daughter as well in the film. So even though we're dealing with multiple versions of some of these characters, there's still sort of a common emotional through line of the relationship between these people. And um, the, the precise nature of Jobu Topaki, who is the big bad in this film, uh, is something we can get into when we get into spoilers here. But she is also played by Stephanie Sue, who is uh, who, who plays the daughter Joy. And the interplay between these two different versions of herself, I thought, was was utterly fascinating and creates a continuous emotional through line between this mother daughter relationship that ultimately anchors the film. Um, I think what's going on between her and her husband, Waymond, was uh, was there as well. But I think it was less important. This was very much a film about mothers and daughters. Um, I uh, and, and I'm with you on the uh, on, you know, people people writing these things and saying that this movie spoke to them in such specific ways. On io9 today, I just read a review from uh, from critic Linda Codega, uh, who talked about what their experience was watching this film while trans uh, and how how much they related to uh, this film from growing up trans in an, uh, in an Asian American. I believe it was an Asian American family. I'm not uh, t totally sure, unfortunately. Um, but regardless, this spoke to this spoke to them in this very specific way, and I and I appreciated that. And and it's one of these things that as I'm watching the film, even as I found things to identify with myself, I still assumed that that I was not plumbing all of the possible depths of the film. There there just seemed to be a lot more going on there, but it's all anchored by this mother daughter relationship. So again, I respect that that was the reaction you had, but that was the emotional through line for me. That was the arc for both of these characters, and uh, and there was movement on that arc by the end of the film, and that's what ultimately made it all work for me.
Yeah, I mean, I understand. I saw that same through line uh, as well. I guess for me, I kind of rolled my eyes and said, is this really just boiling down? All this absurdity is boiling down to the darling's a hug. Like, fine. <laughs> like, <laughs> Is there anything more quintessentially human than that? Even if you're a multiverse-spanning god, you just want a hug. <laughs> just, like, just give her a stupid hug and let's call it a day. <laughs> like, we can talk on. about the scene with the two rocks when we get into spoilers here. Surprisingly, that is a spoiler. <laughs> but, yeah, the uh, exposition scene was, was uh, at least clever, but... Ugh. Yeah, I, but I mean, it's it, to the extent that it's spelling out the movie's themes, I think it kind of worked. It worked in a way, in, in kind of a similar way to scenes that we've seen in the likes of A Ghost Story or The Green Knight. Like, that's kind of what it reminded me of, was people sort of pondering the big questions of what all of this means if there are these billions of universes out there. Um, and to the to the extent that this worked as a sci-fi film, as a film about big ideas, I thought that really worked for me, even though it was grounded fundamentally in this very human relationship. But you didn't like all the absurdity. And there, the absurdity was right there. It was everywhere. It was in every scene. It was all the little details. Straight up, when we see at the in, in a scene very near the end of the film, we see a close-up of all these receipts on the table uh, in the uh, the Wang's family uh, uh, table upstairs and because uh, they're preparing for their IRS audit. And on the calculator screen, somebody has typed in the numbers to spell out boobies on that calculator screen. It's on the screen for maybe half a second. And I'm like, that was thrown in there for me. And that is absolutely absolutely a juvenile joke for 14 year olds i'm right there with you there's another joke involving let's say some trophies uh, and uh, i think this movie uses absurdity to great effect because it's it's a plot mechanic you literally have to do something that is extremely improbable in order to bring in skills from another universe so it's bringing in shades of like the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy with the infinite improbability drive where uh you know you fire this thing up and then a whale and a petunia plant fall out of the sky or something on something on those lines it's been a few years since i read that book but um the absurdity actually served the plot in some way, and it often ended up uh, bringing in skills that were not so obviously related to, like, there, there's a universe in which uh, in which Evelyn knows Kung Fu, Kung Fu universe, and we see her do some amazing choreography as a result of that, but we could just go back to that universe over and over again and have her whooping all kinds of ass, but the movie doesn't do that. It has it has a number of different versions over that it plays with, and that sometimes they're relevant to the fights in ways that don't seem immediately obvious and then pay off brilliantly within the scene, and I, I just appreciated all of those details. And when, a, when absurdity is used to such great effect like that, that is also something I very much enjoyed about Swiss Army Man. That is an absolutely ridiculous film about a lonely man befriending a corpse that can talk and fart and do weird things, played by Daniel Radcliffe it really only works if you embrace the absurdity whatever wavelength that the daniels are operating on you may just be one daniel too many for them daniel it's very possible uh i mean i'm the guy who likes victorian romances so sorry your your butt stuff with the trophies didn't work for me (laughs) (laughs) um i will say i did appreciate the uh, creativity in the film i i thought that there was a lot of uh, unique ways uh, that they played with the set dressing and the scene design and just how they, like you mentioned, how they resolved some of the conflict by integrating skills from a different universe in a unique way. I thought that was good. I just yeah. felt like if you're going to play with some of these different realities, have that be more meaningful, right? Like imagine if, the, if you were the title character and you were learning the, the title character everything or everywhere sure and and you were learning different versions of yourself want to be more profound rather than you learn a skill to punch somebody in the face that you learn how you got to be that person 
I don't think I agree with that because that's exactly what we get with Evelyn. That's not what we get with Evelyn. She has no profound revelations from it. It's all like, are you kidding me? She absolutely has a profound revelation. No, and it is that it is that her life without her husband would have been awesome. And what a revelation that is for a a marriage that she knows is on the verge of ending. (laughs) That's not profound. That's that's stated from the beginning of the film. Like they're clearly unhappy with each other. It'd be one thing if they loved and cared about each other and they were close and. And then she realized that her life would be so much better without him. You don't think that they love and care about each other and are close. I don't agree with that at all. I think that uh, I, th- I think it's a moment where this guy realizes that the only way that she reacts, the only way that she engages properly with what's going on in the situation is if is if there's an emergency, is if there's a crisis. And the rest of the time, she he can't get a word in. He can't get her ear. And that's the crisis in their marriage right now. And it immediately fe- felt high stakes to me, even though... It was obviously very much a sideshow to what was going on in the rest of the film here. To the to the extent there was an emotional through line for their relationship, it was her grappling with the fact that the set of choices that she and he made in their lives led them to this situation. And there were so many other versions of themselves out there where they might have been happier. That seems kind of profound to me. It seems kind of it seems deeply cynical to it's me as well. It's very basic. Because they don't really they don't have like a big talk about what that would mean in the future if they were to stake together. It, it, it's, yes, I, I understand what you're saying. I'm not saying you're wrong per se. I'm saying it didn't feel profound to me. Okay, fair enough. Uh, one one detail I did like from that uh, that universe where Evelyn Wang is a movie star is that one at one moment we literally see a shot of Michelle Yeoh on the red carpet for Crazy Rich Asians uh, playing Evelyn Wang, who presumably was in Crazy Rich Asians in this universe. So that was a nice nice detail there. In all universes, Crazy Rich Asians exists and is a big old spectacle. So it was a movie I watched. I, I can lobby one complaint. Um. One of the key crux relationships that we we talk about is uh, Joy and Becky, and Becky is such a nothing character that I couldn't possibly care about their them being together. Well, Becky was a love interest, and she's one that we knew almost nothing about. Ex- exactly. For her so what? As, she's an American. She's a white girl. She's an outsider. Uh, her her family is somewhat appalled by by her as a romantic partner choice for their daughter, but also. They're worried about uh, about Grandpa, about Gong Gong, uh, played by the uh, the great character actor James Hong, um, you know, disapproving of what's going on there. And that has got to be a common scenario within families that have that have LGBT people in them is, OK, we'll accept you, but we're not going to make our parents accept you, which is really just a way of not accepting them at all, because it implies you're still embarrassed about them and don't want to present that version of them of their true selves to the world. So it's one of these things that is just it's it's so small, but it's so uncommonly depicted in film. It just for that to be I mean, that could be the crux of an entire drama right there, but it's just a detail about this family. And it's presented in such a mundane and matter of fact way like this, like Joy expected this and is used to this from her family and is fucking over it. That's kind of the starting point for that which uh, becomes Jobu Tupaki. So, Daniel, shall we get into spoilers? Is there spoilers for a film like this? We go from bit to bit, and then there's hot dogs for fingers. Uh, <laughs> you know, possibly not. I, I think that uh, I could talk about some of my favorite gags from the film. Why don't we here, do that? It's, it's kind of it's like you say. I think that to the extent that this film works for you, it's all going to be about how well the family arc works through all of this sci-fi action, which, by the way absolutely stunning fight choreography like i had just watched the raid redemption for my 10 year 10 year retrospective and 
I'm not going to say that this movie had action choreography that is on that same level, but Certainly like those not. were those were 25 year old martial arts athletes, and these were Michelle Yeoh, who was almost 60 years old, uh, Ki Hui Kwan, who was almost the same age, and Stephanie Su, who is uh, not an not an actor who has done this sort of work before all being trained up like they're experts in kung fu and it's really quite stunning to see i mean it's beautifully shot it's uh, the the fights are the fights are ridiculous and absurd but they look really cool the camera is always moving the camera is always doing interesting things it's getting down on the floor it's it's tipping sideways it, the action is shot very dynamically in the film we have cinematography here by Larkin Siepel and i actually have to give a shout out here to Paul Rogers who edited the film as well the editing is very much a star of this film because all of the different ways in which these universes are interacting, it could be an absolute muddled mess. But Daniel, tell me if you agree with me on this here. Obviously the, the stakes of the film did not land with you, but did the coherence of the film land with you when she was popping between universes and we were seeing different versions of her experiences and the editing was showcasing that in various ways. Did you find that easy as easy to follow as I did? Yes. I would say the editing is a, is a high point uh, for the film to be able to edit all those very random seeming events into a coherent narrative is, is, a, is definitely an accomplishment. I thought they did a good job with that, for sure, especially because there's so many bits that really need to be tied together to a larger narrative, and everything has a payoff, whether it's small or large, it has some sort of a payoff. Even two rocks on, on a mountaintop have a payoff. Yeah, so, I guess we don't we don't need to talk about the specifics of the two rocks on a mountaintop, except to say that they do a good job of explaining what it is and why it is, and that it it ends up being an emotional payoff, which is literally subtitles appearing on a screen in front of a pair of rocks. And I've never seen anything like that in a movie before, and I always like a movie when it can show me something new. And people laughed. People really liked that scene. Yeah, people laughed, but people also were reacting emotionally to it in the ways that they were intended to. And I, I appreciated that as I was watching it. So um, that's probably about all I got. I guess you're right. We probably don't need a spoiler section for this, except, uh, you know, unless we want to talk about the flying butthole guy, which it sounds like you don't. I mean, you're welcome to talk about it and talk about how, how there was a flying butthole guy. I, that that it, joke thoroughly landed with me. If it, it, if so it landed proud. with you, if you identify with that as something that you do in your personal life, fantastic. <laughs> I'm glad. Um, if that's what gives you special powers, I think that's fantastic. I wonder how many different layers of that mosaic blur that they toyed with for, for maximum comedic effect. It's one of those things that would not have been as funny if it hadn't been censored on screen in an R-rated film, but I, I appreciated that. Jamie Lee Curtis, quite liked her in this film as well. She's uh, she's exactly as unlikable as you would expect an IRS auditor to be, but this is also a character that contains more layers than I was expecting her to, uh, and it... it it makes sense that an actor of Jamie Lee Curtis's caliber would be uh, would be on board for this. Um, yeah, that's about all I got, Daniel. Well, it was a movie. No, I, I think there was some definitely uh, positive things about it. I think, like, like I said, the editing was quite good. The acting was overall very solid, especially from uh, Stephanie Sue. And it, it's not my thing. I didn't identify with it. But that doesn't mean I thought it was bad. I just thought it wasn't for me. Yeah, I think that... The, the differing perspectives on the nature of reality and sort of whether the, the totality of the multiverse turns you into a destructive nihilist or turns you into something optimistic and some, somebody with hope for the future. I mean, that's ultimately what's on display. And you know, the, those other scenes that we compared it to or that I compared it to with A Ghost Story or The Green Knight, the talk of, you know, all of this, the totality of existence, everything, everywhere, all at once being so much bigger than ourselves. And this film even took that a step further uh, rhetorically by saying, you know, 
you look out at all these fantastic new discoveries, gravitational waves, black holes colliding, and you want and you just get another reminder of what a tiny piece of shit every human being is and how insignificant we are in this vast universe. And I cannot relate to hearing about all of that all, all of that scientific discovery and having that reaction, but I believed it when it was coming from the character that expressed that point of view in this film. Now, hold on. I posted an article today in our private Slack group about Saturn's rings going away in like 400 million years, and you said, I don't concern myself with the geologic passings of time. Oh, yeah, I said I don't stress about it. So how, how, can rings you, are... how could you view yourself as this insignificant speck in the totality of the universe when you don't even care about geologic passings of time? Well, I think you might have misunderstood my point on that. Saturn's rings will be gone in 600 million years because Saturn's rings are inherently an, unst- an instability. They are the destruction of a moon that used to exist or some other... Bu- some other. But why even worry about anything uh, outside of yourself? Well, I'm not, it's not that I'm worried about it. It's, it's just that, to quote Professor Brian Cox in the BBC series The Planets, this is our moment in the sun where there is life here on Earth for the next billion years or so before it's too hot to inhabit it. Uh, and... You know, this is, uh, I'll, I'll quote another uh, another cosmologist here. We live in a special time, the only time when we can observationally verify that we live in a special time. So I find that we happen to exist in a universe where we, with our senses and our and our tools and our, and our brains, can understand some part of it to be exhilarating. Uh, I find that exciting. And I find that exciting even up against the inevitable reality that our species will not outlast all of this. It doesn't bother me. It's never bothered me. I've always wanted to learn as much about it as possible. But I also know that there are a lot of people whose brains don't work the same way as mine. And the idea of somebody who the idea of somebody who internalizes all of that pain and as well as the totality of existence as a source of, wow, I'm a tiny piece of shit. I can feel that pain as expressed by this character, even if it's not pain I can directly relate to. And that is, I think, why that that aspect of this landed, because even those parts that I didn't find relatable, I still found sympathetic. Um, and I was still able to experience empathy for those characters in that moment. So, um, yeah, ultimately, that's why I think the movie worked for me. It does. It does not sound like you felt the same way, though. You know, I, I don't like Rick and Morty either. So, well, Rick and Morty is a deeply mean show. It's very cynical, and I don't know that it's uh, I, it's something that I can only take in small doses, honestly. <laughs> I guess I don't. I don't have that kind of brain where I can really enjoy the multiverse stuff that much. I guess like, it's kind of like Doctor Who too, where I'm like, well, none of it really matters, so who cares? They're just going right. to push a big reset button at the end and, yeah. and make it all better. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I can at least relate to having that reaction to this. At a certain point, when you have world-ending stakes over and over again, it just ceases to matter. Marvel is obviously getting that uh, that sort of stakeflation going on in some of theirs. You can only threaten the entire world so many times before we stop giving a shit. But... Uh, you know, I, this movie felt so thoroughly like its own thing. It felt like such an encapsulated story, despite being in this, despite taking place across thousands of different universes simultaneously. Um, yeah, I was, I was on board for it. I never want to see a sequel to this. I never want to see an expansion of this. I don't care how well it does. I, I just want it to be its own special thing. So hopefully that's what it is. Well, uh, Daniel, any final thoughts about the film? No, I think, I think we covered everything. That I, would, I would say, I think the, the only bit that I was almost amused by. Almost was the raccoon pit. What was it they called it? It was Ratatouille with a raccoon. Yeah, it? It was, yeah. It was like ra- Ratatouille, Ratatouille, <laughs> like or something. Yeah, I was like, okay, that's that's kind of funny, I guess. Yeah, they and they paid that off pretty brilliantly too. I'm surprised you didn't like when Pro Wrestling Universe was uh, brought in, but mm. that was a very quick moment. So. Mm. 
Look, look, I when when we get into the next film, I'll tell you what I found funny in that film. I know you. You told me before I watched Deep Water that you chuckled, that you laughed many times during that film, and I was prepared for that kind of reaction. That is my sense of humor, right there. I don't think it was unintentional, but that is my sense of humor. All right, we'll get to it. Well, that brings us to the end of our discussion of everything, everywhere, all at once. If you have any feedback, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail dot com. And now on to our review of Deep Water. Why is mom so different around other people? I think this is who she is. You love me? Of course. You're not born. No. The fact that she's comfortable flaunting all these relationships around all of us, you're better than that. She's different. That's what I like about her. I want to feel joy in my life. You want to tell me why you didn't come home last night? Not really. This isn't a game, Melinda. It's always been a game. That was from the trailer of Deep Water, the new film from 81-year-old British director Adrian Lin, uh, his first film since Unfaithful, which came out in the year 2002. Uh, seems to be a sub- seems to be some subject matter that he is still interested in at this point in his life. The screenplay is by Zach Helm and Sam Levinson. Uh, I call that out because Sam Levinson is the uh, creator of, uh, of a show called Euphoria that I just started watching on HBO Max and have watched the first season of. It is also based on the novel Deep Water by Patricia Highsmith. Uh, this film follows a couple, Melinda and Vic Van Allen, uh, played by Ana de Armas and Ben Affleck, who are a pair of idle rich people uh, living off a uh, living off a drone robotics fortune. And uh, they pretty much all they do is garden parties, hang out in the greenhouse with their snake with uh, their snails, and uh, go on mountain bike uh, sprees, and also engage in intense psychosexual violent games with each other and other people. Does that sound about right, Daniel? <laughs> it does, and it's fantastic. Uh, Ana de Armas is playing Melinda, a woman who openly flirts with, dances with, kisses, and has uh, romantic entanglements with other men in full view of her husband and in full view of other people in their community. Uh, and she is, and she stares a lot, is one of the first things that I said about her in the, uh, in the She's film. She's big on the staring. She is, for lack of, I, I mean, Anadarmus is doing something quite intense in this film. She is a character that just projects sensuality at all times, uh, projects deviousness, and projects absolute self-possession this is a woman who does precisely what the fuck she wants 100 percent of the time and dares you to have an opinion about it um she is what they what they might call a firecracker and she's ben affleck, neutral <laughs> and ben affleck is playing a guy with absolute stoicism but he also just seems mildly amused by everything that's going on everyone around him keeps trying to tell him hey your wife's being kind of slutty around here but he doesn't want to hear it and he doesn't want to interact with it and he and he constantly projects that he doesn't care but there is a darkness to this character and there is a darkness to this marriage that gets explored in detail throughout this film so daniel you watched this film first with your wife uh mm-hmm. tell me what that experience was like we laughed a lot <laughs> this movie was a comedy to me 
I was so amused that neither one of those two went to therapy with all their money. They came real close once there. Yes. I was so hoping there was going to be a drunk strike by the end. I was just, I was holding out hope that one of the paramours was vaporized. They seeded that Vic had connections to the weapons industry, the munitions industry, and it never really pays off. There's no drone strike was, in this th- film. I don't that was it. really the only disappointing thing about the film for me was that at no point did a paramour get vaporized by a drone. Indeed. <laughs> like, I... So this is my sense of humor, right? In movies that aren't intentionally funny, but like have just kind of bad acting and bad dialogue. It's interesting that you think that the comedy in this film was unintentional because I don't think I agree. I think this film was a del- Well, it's based off a book from the 50s. Nobody joked in the 50s. Well, sure, but this is an adaptation that came out in 2021 and was probably shot three years earlier because of COVID but and pre-Disney acquisition when they weren't sure what to do with this weird erotic thriller thing that they had. But nonetheless... This is a movie that was made now, and it was made with these actors, and it was made with this director, and it was made with this tone. And the tone of this movie felt deeply satirical to me. It was about marriage as this institution of... It's it's just this folie à deux. It's these two people embracing each other's insanity and quirks and just kind of using the rest of the world as little playthings. And that's obviously a very cynical view of marriage, but it's a it's something that was very clear uh, in the uh, in the construction of this film. At least at least to me, this felt like a deliberate comedy to me. Yeah, perhaps I, I think Melinda is definitely a villain, <laughs> uh, and, and she's definitely trying to get passion. As she, as she calls for, out of uh, Vic. And Vic just wants to hang out with the snails, which I admire. Like, there was a lot of snail time in the film, That's, and I thought that was great. I was expecting the snails to pay off in some sinister way as well, but uh, well, but they, instead they just, they just kept being used as a creepy backdrop for various conversations. So I think um, Ben Affleck playing Vic, or as I call him in the film, Murder Batman, uh, was was very entertaining. Uh, to me, uh, all of his uh, when he was fucking with all the different paramours, intensely like making them uncomfortable. I enjoyed that. Yeah. That was making me laugh. I, I was definitely entertained by. <laughs> I loved every one of those scenes. But answer me this: Do you think that? And we can obviously get into specifics here when we get into spoilers. But because uh, I think we will want to do spoilers for this movie. It is my opinion watching this film that Victor and Melinda are made for each other. They are peas in a fucking pod. This is like the Gone Girl marriage if they'd stayed together forever. Like, it's almost a sequel to Gone Girl. These two are, they have opted into each other's toxicity. You cannot imagine these two being satisfied in any other life except the fucked up one they've got with each other. And you talked about Vic kind of playing little mental games with with all of his wife's friends as as she introduces them as well as all the different members of the community but i get the feeling that melinda was constantly playing games both with vic and with her paramours and with the other people in the community as well oh, I, I thought that they were working in tandem yeah. the whole time like she she takes the paramour she befriends them she flirts with them she fools around with them and then he gets off on being able to scare the shit out of them and drive them away and then they the the the, the tug between the two of of these individual guys caught in the middle that's what they love yeah and it's it's literally them using these guys as, as playthings here and it becomes this weird gothic fairy tale that I was I was totally on board for um, so I'm kind of with you Daniel I think you and I enjoyed this movie on a similar wave length i laughed so much with the author character when he was in this is tracy letts as uh, don wilson the screenwriter 
Yes, the screenwriter. Uh, he has some great lines of dialogue. Tracy Letts, I don't primarily know as an actor, but he's he's outstanding in this film, and he has some of the best comedy lines in the movie. <laughs> uh, but like all the sexual tension, like it, it felt kind of PG for the most part. I mean, like we we see what we see Melinda Topless a, a couple of times, and you know they have a couple of uh, you know rolls in the hay, you know that are aggressive. But like it, it wasn't like a deeply sexual film. It was just a deeply like mind toxicity film, right? Right. Like these, these people shouldn't be together, but they really work together despite the fact that they pretend like they don't care about each other. I guess I would kind of agree with that, but I think that so much of Melinda's sexuality is expressed in her relationships with other men. And so much of that happens off screen in implicit sort of ways that it's hard to say how much of a, I I mean, most of the sexual interplay in this film takes place in the characters minds and just the ways in which they're staring at each other. So there, there is an intense sensuality to how these two interact with each other, even though there's very little actual sex that occurs on screen. And the sex that we do see on screen is fleeting. It's very quick. It's almost hidden in the edit sometimes. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that Affleck being so much older than Anna de Armas, in the same way that Don is so much older than, than his wife, Kelly, played by Kristen Connolly, very much feels like part of the point of the film. Um, that, you know, this is just what rich men do. They find these younger trophy oh, wives sure. and treat them like little toys and are surprised when they turn out to be people with opinions and dreams and desires of their own. Didn't really seem like the primary point of the film, but it felt like part of the backdrop of the film. Would you say that's fair? It's certainly there. Yeah, it's, it's not it's not a primary point, but it's definitely an undercurrent. I, I think the age difference between these two is important because all of the men that she invites into the situation are all her age. I mean, Ana de Armas is like 30 years old or something like that. Affleck's pushing 50. She's, yeah, she's in her thir- early 30s. And yeah. all of the men that she brings around are are her age. So there's there's kind of this unspoken like, oh... I'm with this old man, but he doesn't really try to control me. He doesn't really try to stop me from doing what I feel like doing. He lets me be who I want. They're all Matt Damon impersonators. <laughs> Just you know, about. These, yeah. she, def- she definitely has a. She definitely has a thing. Well, it's also um, that she. I mean, when we, whenever we see her spell out why she is doing these things, it's half about herself and her pursuing her own passion, and it's half her trying to pigeonhole Vic as, and the manner in which he loves her. And the ways in which she describes their relationship are deeply fucked up and deeply dysfunctional. At one point, she says to him, if you were married to somebody else, you'd be so bored you'd fucking kill yourself. And that is a hell of a thing to say to your spouse. And Vic doesn't really disagree in that moment. I know. He doesn't flinch. They never flinch when they're interacting with each other. These two have each other absolutely pegged. They know each other better than anyone on Earth. And that is clear in their performance. And I think that is why this movie worked for me as well. Well, should we go ahead and get into spoilers here? (laughs) Yeah. Do we want to talk about Grace Jenkins as their daughter, Trixie? What did you think of this child character that is in this film? It adds an extra layer of fuck upness to this entire setup that all of this is happening in full view of a child. Yes, uh, she's the precocious child that knows too much, likes on, like, it's clear that she understands the dynamic between her parents. Yeah. I, I liked this performance from this child actor, Grace Jenkins, very much. I mean, kids are uh, – I, I was just uh, reading the uh, the memoir by, Bri- by the actor Brian Cox putting the rabbit into the hat. And at one point he said that children are natural actors because – they they can only act sincerely. They can only act on instinct. They're not trying to they're not trying to wrap up their performance in their own personal history or neuroses. And I don't know what was going through this kid's head as she was as she was trying to express what this kid knows, but there is a precociousness to this character. And when she's having one on one conversations, mostly with with Ben Affleck as Vic, 
you're just like, okay, there's clearly there's clearly an intense familial love here going on, but there's also something very dark going on here. Like he's training his new protege, and it's it's very disturbing to watch, and it's played beautifully by these two actors. You know, I, I like that uh, the daughter. Uh, although I, I don't like child actors as a rule, because um, I don't believe children should be acting. Are you serious about that? Do you like? Do you do you think they're just not good actors, or do you think that it's bad for them to be acting? Uh, it's, well, a little bit of both. I mean, most child actors do not turn out very well. That is true, I suppose. Uh, uh, I just think short people should just do the child roles. Like, I'm not saying like you know. Dwarfs. I'm not talking about that. I'm gonna say like this: shorter adults. I, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I don't think I agree with you, but there you go. I'm, I'm also just teasing. I, 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 I do remember in the in the Tarsum uh, film, The Fall, uh, with uh, with Lee Pace, uh, basically telling a story to a child, uh, and that child was played by like an actual four year old. And watching that movie as the kid is like weeping horribly about all the horrible things that Lee Pace is talking is talking about in this this fantasy epic story that he's talking about. You just got to think like making this movie was kind of an act of child abuse. Like you had to create this reality in which this horrible thing was happening. And the only way to get that performance out of a four-year-old is to persuade them that it's all happening for real. Um, right, this right. kid felt like she was probably a little bit older than that, maybe six or seven. So maybe there was a little bit more self-awareness going on there. At least some, some opportunity to explain to her, Hey, here's what your child knows. And maybe don't get into the specifics of it. <laughs> Too much, you know. No, I, I, I'm definitely kidding. I, I think child actors are fine. I guess they call up and don't turn out very well. Like, it's not good for them, like, long term. Uh, but, you know, in this case, I think the actor would, would do a fine job. And, and she, she's definitely, what I enjoyed was that she was uh, deliberately trying to drive her mother crazy. That certainly seemed to be what was going on, yeah. Um, and to the extent that everything, everywhere, all at once was about mother-daughter relationships, that was not what was going on in this film at all. There was basically nothing well, thank between. Thank God. I mean... There was nothing between Melinda and Trixie. Melinda does not seem like a natural mother. It does not seem like she had any sort of relationship with her daughter other than rage. Uh, and if this was about any relationship, it was about the relationship between Vic and Trixie. But even then, it was thank, it was a sideshow to, to the primary one. Thank God the movie didn't boil down to Trixie needs a hug. Like, come But for on. real, though, Trixie does need a hug after all of this. No, she's got the Affleck. He'll hug her with the snails. Well, uh, Daniel, shall we go ahead and get into spoilers? Let's do it. All right, from here on out, spoilers for Deep Water. I'm just reading a section of my notes here in which I wrote, These people are fucked up. And then on the next line, I write, she eats an apple in the car like an asshole. And then she makes coffee with her dress halfway off and complains that America is so suffocating. (laughs) There are a lot of moments like that in this film um, where she's just kind of raging against the situation and like, no, why can't I be a why can't I be a weird little sexually charged person right now? in this of all moments in front of our 15 year old babysitter. (laughs) And uh, that's a lot of what's going on in this film here is just these two people acting wildly inappropriately. Now, I think that there's probably room to, there's probably room to wonder to what extent this, uh, the characterization of Vic works because Vic is a murderer and he gets off on murdering his wife's lovers. And the movie spends probably a full hour playing coy about whether he actually is a murderer or not before we see him literally kill a guy with a rock. 
So I kind of like that because I, you know, uh, my wife and I were, were discussing uh, as we were watching the film, and we were saying, well, maybe there's they kill them together. Yeah, like maybe it's a maybe they're in like she lowers that person into a dangerous situation to allow Vic to kill them, and then she pretends that she's so upset because her plaything is gone. Yeah, but at the same time, we see them getting we we see her getting angry at him for uh, at one point spreading a rumor that he killed Martin McRae, uh, an old friend. Yeah, it was a theory that my wife and I had. It wasn't like in the movie to disprove that theory. I was actually going to agree with you there because there is an alternate read on that scene, which is that that was her getting mad at him for projecting suspicion onto them by making that joke. She gets very, very angry at him for making that joke. Uh, and of course, she also gets very, very angry at him for joking about her dead friend. And also we see him uh, we see him revealing that Martin McRae's body has been found and it seems to be new information to her. So mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know that it quite uh, makes sense, at least that she was involved with that one in particular. But I think that it's reasonable to infer that she knows what her husband is doing. She knows that he's threatening these men and she knows that he might be killing these men. And that's made explicit by the end of the film. She knows that he killed Tony and she helps cover it up because she realizes Mm -hmm. this is where I belong. And this is, this is my man. (laughs) Well, and and first off, Tony deserved it, right? Because here he's invited to dinner. He goes to the snailatorium and he's like, Oh, I can just (laughs) take a couple of your snails. And Ben Affleck, Vic says, the snails are not for eating. And he's like, oh, then what are they for? Buddy, a thing can exist beyond your need for consumption, okay? like it, I had a feeling you would relate to that exact moment. <laughs> yeah. When uh, Tony got hit in the head with a rock, I said, good snail killer, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> suppose he did have it coming yes that I, I i gotta say that entire set piece of the ravine the river down underneath the woods the bike trails getting the perfect location where the geography of that and the final chase would actually make sense was i mean of course they may have assembled that entire set piece from multiple locations for all we know but uh still i was very impressed with it um you just know what didn't work about that, that? Sense. go on you know, so like Ben Affleck, so Vic, Vic is like just driving incredibly aggressively up this trail with, with uh, Tony in the car. But they have the dog in the back. Yes. And the dog is not like buckle in. And he's doing some like jumps basically with the, with the vehicle yeah. and the dog is not like tossed all over the place. That didn't make any sense. But that guy was a minor well, the uh, the the murder pupper is uh, also on his lap after he after he does the deed. So it's possible this particular dog just has a very dark history and was like, "Oh, this guy's killing people. That means he's my master again." <laughs> like just like my previous owner, you know. Uh, I don't I, I don't know. The puppy was kind of just there. Uh, well, I meant like the physics of the dog being the, in the back of the car as the car was doing crazy stuff well, and he wasn't sure, buckled but I, in. But they didn't show the dog bouncing around as that was happening. So I, it was pretty. Easy I know, to but I was I was worried about the dog. I didn't care about tony i wanted tony to die i just wanted him to be killed with a drone (laughs) yeah the uh the details in that scene um i mean we see a number of scenes in which vic just cold as ice fucking psychopath uh acts like a normal person who's not about to murder you and right up until the moment where uh, you know he's driving tony into the woods and tony's like i think i'm gonna call melinda and vic's like yeah go ahead 
Uh, like, like it ain't no thing. Uh, and he knows there's no signal out there, but, uh, but he, he yep. just kind of let, but he's not, he's not mocking him. He's just giving him a little bit of hope because he thinks that that hope is going to make it easier for him to complete the, uh, the murder that he came there to do. So I love that detail. I loved him interacting with the cops as well. Um, he just shamelessly projects his wife as crazy. Uh, you know, asks if she has later on asks a private eye who, who is posing as, as a psychotherapist, which is maybe where this movie shows it's 1950 novel roots here a psychotherapist mm-hmm. is kind of an antiquated term there uh but asks her if his wife has schizophrenic tendencies and just says cold as ice no i didn't kill the guy you know we we went we went inside i burned my hand on a cookie I, I, like i'm sad he's dead i <laughs> he also just quite stoically says i don't ask my wife questions about her personal life i don't feel the need to control her and the, the cops like that's a bit weird you know and it's like Okay, I, I understand America's conservative and all that, but it's like, dude, you're a mur- you're a homicide detective, and you've never heard of an open marriage, even conceptually. Like they they exist in the world, <laughs> but yeah, not in the world. Now it's not to say this is not a win for like polyamorous representation. These people are deeply fucked up, and they are not if to the extent that they're in any sort of common rule set. The common rule set is we will endlessly fuck with each other until death do us part. <laughs> Oh, this wasn't like a documentary for Paul Amory? Not so much, no. <laughs> but no, I don't no. think it ever intended to be either. Uh, it, and I hope that uh, any Polly folks in the audience can enjoy it as the pulpy fucking weird thing that it is. I thought I thought that was the whole point of Paul Amory, was that you kill a third. <laughs> you, you, you you fuck the third and then you kill the third? Is that the idea? Yeah. yeah. All right, we'll have to explore that. Well, I have a lot to learn. <laughs> well... Daniel, it sounds like we enjoyed this movie in pretty similar ways, so I uh, I, I don't have much more <laughs> the, to say about it except for the best the best joke of the film for me was goddamn fucking autocorrect, <laughs> goddamn fucking autocorrect. I'm like, buggy, you don't you can drive that fast. Yeah. He's on a bicycle. Yeah, this wasn't a this wasn't a public service announcement about polyamory, but it was a public service announcement about not texting while driving. Like if you just you really driven your it. way it's out not there, safe. you would have made it. You would have run right over Ben Affleck, and you would have been you would have been fine. And then you could have texted your wife when you were you know 90 miles down the road <laughs> I, I, I you didn't have to, to text your wife right then and there that you were right while you were driving aggressively on a on a dirt path yeah and uh, how are you gonna not, go with i idea? was right instead of he just murdered a guy in front of me like something a bit more <laughs> intuitive you know that guy oh, Vic, Vic so murdered tony i found him disposing of a body in the ravine come to the ravine with all the cops like just give the pertinent details dude right well, does not text, you know, speech to text exist? Uh, apparently not on this guy's phone. So. And then he drops his phone and yeah. Um, everything Tracy Letts was doing in that scene was very funny. So I got I, gotta I, I, I laughed a lot. Yeah. Uh, what are you going to do? Catch me on your bike? <laughs> ben Affleck's like, fuck yeah, I am. So Ben Affleck goes on these really like a thorough bike rides. Oh, aggressive you know, mountain biking. like Aggressive believe, yeah. mountain biking, wearing like dress clothes. Um, I guess it's not good. That's not good for the dress clothes. Not great, but if you're rich, you can afford to do that, I guess. <laughs> Did you notice we got a repeat of the opening scene? The The opening scene was, in fact, the final scene of him arriving back home. And Correct. The, her, yes, I, I, as I as I told my wife, oh, we've come full circle. Yeah, her staring back with, to the with weird... deep meaning at him from the top of the staircase, then going upstairs. And I, I liked that recontextualization. I could kind of take it or leave it. It didn't really add much to the film. Because yeah. the, the film definitely hits a lot of the same beats over and over again. It, like, they go to a party. There's a dude there. There's a lot of talk about what the relationship between that dude and Melinda is. There's a lot of, a lot oh, of did sexy the first dancing. dude die? Yeah. Did you think the first dude died? Uh, the first dude was which dude? I'm trying to remember. Oh, I think his name was uh, Paul. 
The guy who looks like um, Matt Damon. I mean, you said they all looked like Matt Damon, but... Yeah, but he was like the most look, looking like Matt Damon. That's fair. Uh, I, I don't know. The first guy uh, the first guy got scared off and then came over for dinner. And I, I don't know. Honestly, uh, Joel, that was the one. Joel, sorry. Yes. And that that's the one where Affleck calls him an Uber. Oh, yes. Yes. And then sends him on his merry way. No, I don't think that guy died. I think he successfully got frightened away. Um, but uh, what else? Um I have a note here of Trixie asking why mommy behaves differently around other people. And Vic says, because people are strange and grownups are complex. Yeah. That about, that about fucking sums it up. Daniel, I, uh, I had a, I had a quote here. This is another Sam Levinson line from the, uh, as delivered by Sidney Sweeney as Cassie on the season finale, the season one finale of euphoria. Uh, aren't you a little old for a euphoria? I'm not. It's a super fucking dark show, but it's got a lot of actors. I came to uh, have an affinity for it's, later it's, in their career. It's and high I'm, school kids having sex. Well, it's high right? school kids I, I, played by 21 year olds. Like who cares? Uh, but the uh, but it, why? It's a Gen Z show. Why are you watching? It's not a Gen that? Z show. But anyway, uh, there's a quote where she and her sister Lexi are, sta- are sitting around at a high school dance, watching a deeply dysfunctional couple dance with each other. And uh, Cassie says, "I feel like love is super dark, and no one ever talks about it." And her sister Lexi goes, "Yeah, but that might be specific to their kind of love." <laughs> That feels like it sums up this movie pretty well. And for a script that Sam Levinson probably completed years before he ever worked on Euphoria, because this movie's been in the production pipeline, I think, since like 2013, and it took a long time to come out. Wow. Um, it feels like he's had a chance to develop those themes a bit more. There's a lot more of that going on in Euphoria as well, just the the nature of dysfunctional love and relationships. And, uh, you know, this movie felt like it was delving into some of that as well, but it felt like it was delving into it in a way that was very playful and very silly and in a way that the actors deeply committed to and were clearly having a massive amount of fun with. I believe Affleck and, and Dearmas ended up in some sort of romantic relationship for a time while making this Correct. movie. So yes. I got to imagine it's pretty awkward doing press for that now. <laughs> but No, I'm going to say it was a different time. New Orleans is a magical place and we kill people for fun in real Indeed. life. And Affleck's back with J-Lo, so he's gone back to a different time himself. So there you go. Ah, yes. The 90s. Early 2000s, actually. It was when it was shortly before she was working on Jersey Girl, which was 2003. So there you go. We were in high school. We were indeed. All right, Daniel. Well, any final thoughts about the film? More films like this, please. Like, this <laughs> entertains me. Like, the Daniels can take a, a cue from How to Do Absurdly Well and it's, it's Deep Water. How, would you say this movie reminded you at all of Last Year at Marienbad? <sighs> Ooh, um, kinda. Yeah, kinda. I mean, it's a, it's a weird, fucked up, ambiguous film in which a couple is debating the nature of the reality that they're in. It's not exactly the same thing going on, but it also had a deep layer of kind of fucked up sexuality going on at the core of it that was kind of kind of surprising, a little bit shocking. Uh, I don't know. It, it came to mind a little bit. Another movie this reminded me of was Phantom Thread. Uh, granted, I was expecting that to manifest in a more literal sort of way. I was expecting the snail poison to come back, but it, it really didn't. Um, but uh, But there you go. Yeah, these people really seem to have opted into each other's toxicity and you really just can't imagine them anywhere else so good for them i'm glad they found each other yeah i know it kind of gives you hope for the rest of us yeah all right well if you have any feedback on our discussion of deep water feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com thank you for tuning in to filmwonk.net and have a good night you bring out the mean in me i bring out your insecurity you know what i'm talking about Eventually you'll be fine if we break up And one day I'll be fine